0: Eddie, Lock on. You are about to experience, oh boy, the one of the best interviews that we have ever done.
1: I am so excited for you guys to hear this. Um, we you are gonna hear our interview with Eads, who is, is an amazing a, woman, amazing human who has been in the ed- field of education for seventy years, and Taylor happened upon a gentleman. Her son, Chris. Her son. Shout out to you, Chris. I know that you're
0: listening. Yeah. Hope you're doing well, and I hope your wife's doing well, and I hope everyone's doing
1: well. And how did you meet him?
0: Um, On our way to D.C., mm-hmm. Washington, D.C., a <laughs> <Of course. laughs> couple weeks ago, I was sitting next to Chris, and we started talking about education and all of the things. And lo and behold, his mother, mm-hmm. who you are about to hear from, like Skylar said, has been involved in education in some way or another for the past seventy years. Mm-hmm. So a lifetime of knowledge and wisdom is about to come your way. And yeah. it's just incredible. I mean, we're sitting here just in awe yeah. afterwards because and she we has even, so much to bring. Yeah,
1: we were even talking about the fact that she has she was in education in a time where segregation was a thing and we teach about that in our school Mm -hmm. so she has lived through and so many so many things yeah and
0: And for her to still be involved in education is absolutely incredible and she gives some really really good takeaways Mm -hmm. just from her background and what she's doing today and what we can do as teachers Mm -hmm. and honestly I think one of the biggest takeaways is that We are here to be advocates for ourselves and we are a united front and we can make change. So Mm -hmm. please, please, please take a
1: listen to this episode. We know that you're going to love it. Yeah. And just a forewarning, oh yes. She does tell a story. Um and she does have there is a curse word. There's one curse word.
0: It's very funny. But if you have children listening, just be aware that in the first, what, like few minutes,
1: yeah, she's, there's one little there's word. <laughs> there's one word. So just be aware of that. There is, uh, she, but it is a very funny story and we're so That's happy cute. she told it. So just yep. so you are aware. But yeah. So take a listen and let us know your thoughts.
0: Also, now as I'm listening to this back, you can't hear my voice mm. because I sound like I'm a million miles away. For whatever reason, my mic did not pick up. So I apologize that I sound super distant. But the information that's in this episode is just way too good to redo. Yeah. So please bear with us on this episode and just forgive us. And
1: just listen to Eads. Yes. Just
0: listen to her wisdom instead.
1: (laughs) There you go.
0: Okay. And we are recording. So we have a special guest with us here today, Miss Eads. Would you introduce yourself a little bit, please?
2: Sure. I'd be delighted. Um, I uh, knew I wanted to teach from the time I was eight years old uh, when I believed that I taught um, a little girl to read. I have no doubt her teachers thought they taught her to read, but never mind, I did. And, <laughs> and I never wavered um, from that desire, well, ambition uh, and aspiration. But well, I was born in Brooklyn, New York, and grew up in Greenwich Village on Washington Square. Um, and I graduated from a Quaker school um, where I was a scholarship kid for nine years. Uh, and I mentioned that because the influence of Quaker education on me as a woman and as an educator um, was profound. And we'll talk more about that later. And oh, anyway, I then went on to um, college and then I did what every good girl in the um, 1950s did which is I got married. Getting one's MRS was more important than getting one's BA. Of course. Um, <laughs> and, and I started teaching in the public schools of Amherst, Massachusetts, which was, uh, I taught third grade. I had 28 students, and seven of them were repeaters, and a couple of uh-huh. them were bigger than I was. Um, and that was uh, interesting because the class was very much divided into children of professors all of whom do, who Winnie the Pooh was and who Beethoven is and so forth. And then the children of the farmers, many of them first generation, wonderful families, but had not had the same experience. And that was my first introduction to teaching a classroom full of people who did not share um, the same experiences. Uh, and uh, after that, I, I started a nursery school because I couldn't find one that I liked for my own children's, which I suppose is an expression of arrogance. But on the other <laughs> hand, it did work and it's still going. So um, wow, I, I, I'm happy about that. And I went to teach in a in a co-ed school, taught fifth and sixth grade combined and a fourth grade. And then probably the hardest year of my teaching life was the first grade. And... Um, I mean, first graders, and I think the same would be true for kindergarten, although I have never taught that, but first graders are so, first of all, they're adorable, Hmm. but, but they come to you so eager, so vulnerable and carrying expectations from their families that they're going to, you know, be in the robins' reading group and not the Bluebirds and all of that. (laughs) Um, And uh, I, um, I, I, I've never worked so hard. I had 27 students, um, and but it was also enormously satisfying. Uh, and then I began to move into administration and uh, at a boys' school. Now I can highly recommend teaching at a very conservative boys' school because you learn a whole lot of things about what mm-hmm. you would do and what you wouldn't do. and. I fell in love with my seventh and eighth grade boys. They were fabulous. And I went to the school because by that time I was a single parent of three hungry children and the boys' school was paying better mm-hmm. than um, the other schools, including the public schools. And I, I filed that away in my mind because I think that that is a phenomenon um, in education, that the whole male, female thing, there's no question that it, it still matters and mm-hmm. um, it uh, and it certainly influences um, what we teach and how we teach it. So um, I, I suppose then I became head of two girls schools, uh, one in St. Louis and one in New York City, both of which I loved, 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 loved doing it because of the connections with the teachers. It, it I mean, teaching teachers and mentoring teachers is the thing I love the most, and although I'm not in classrooms now, I am uh, mentoring teachers in a charter school here in St. Louis, um, and uh, it's enormously rewarding, and of course, that is a whole um, uh, urban population ha- going through a whole lot of uh, issues, as you've no, no doubt heard. I mean, Missouri is is a strange place politically, but yeah. in, in the urban... Uh, setting it's um it it can be grim and uh, during the pandemic we had girls calling us crying because they were so hungry and i learned a great lesson you you know what children cannot learn when they are hungry
1: oh yeah
2: (laughs) yeah and somehow we that when we talk about education we have to talk about our children being fed Um, And more more than um, power bars, you know, I mean, it's um, I I think it's it's a serious issue we have in this country right Mm -hmm. now, and an individual teacher can help and schools are helping we serve breakfast and lunch at our charter schools so forth, but it's it's an issue so that um, i'm interested in teach for America, I have been on the board of that in New York City. Um, But my it's it's my passion and without the without the teachers the whole thing falls apart mm-hmm. um, and so my particular focus has always been teachers wow. that been sounds all
0: over then yeah <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing it's just so interesting because people ask me like would you ever leave second grade and I'm always like oh, I don't know probably not because it's just such a sweet spot for me, but I mean, you've been everywhere from first grade to teaching teachers themselves.
1: So that's
2: I- incredible. Yeah. Yeah. And I've, I've, so, I've done some teach, uh, supervising of teachers and summer programs and, um, that, that has also, that was a fabulous learning experience for me. Um, and it was the first time that I had learned about the real, um, issues with, um, uh, integrating public education from the top down, just saying. All right, this year we're all black students and white students are all going to go to school together. Mm. And um, that was a number of years ago when it was in Boston. But and I'm I'm very fond of my uh, my first day. Uh, those my favorite story, I should say, my first day in the mm-hmm. Winchester Public Schools. Um, with three student teachers and um, a bunch of uh, third and, and fourth graders, boys and girls, half of them from the inner city and half of them from the suburb of Winchester, which is a, um, a totally uh, totally white, upper middle-class suburb in Boston and outside of Boston. And um, I had never had experience with uh, a number of, uh, of uh, low-income um children but in this case they happen to be black children and um the opening shot for my career that summer was a eight-year-old boy who marched into the classroom and stood in front of me with his hands on his hips and said good morning motherfucker <laughs> and and i i the student teachers were all looking at me And I was looking at me too, because (laughs) what, what what in God's name are you going to say to that? Exactly. I don't know. I don't (laughs) know. That's hilarious.
1: I know. Could
0: you just imagine like if a child came up? Oh no. Uh,
1: I wouldn't even know how to respond to that.
2: no. No, and subsequently I can tell you I was such a success with him that he ran away. And um and so <laughs> I had to call the police. Oh wow. <laughs> and we we had to go off into the there was a, a big park nearby. And anyway, he had he had taken off. Uh, I've often wondered what happened to him. But actually by the end of the summer, he and I were just fine. But we it was definitely a rocky start.
1: Oh
3: yeah.
0: <laughs> so you tell us, like that's your past are you doing things currently in education you said that you were mentoring teachers currently um and then I think your son mentioned something like you're sitting on multiple boards in education as well correct
2: yes I, I was one of um four people who started a Charter school here in uh, in the city of St. Louis. Um, a charter school for girls. And it's called the Hawthorne Leadership School for Girls. Um, and it's grades six to 12. Uh, and I am still on the board. And although I'm not in the classrooms, because we're we're a brand new school, um, the trustees were somewhat more involved than perhaps, you know, we might've been in another situation. And then of course the pandemic came. but. Um, uh, keep recruiting and keeping teachers. Uh, and more than that, I've always wanted teachers to thrive. We talk about our students thriving, but our teachers have to thrive. Yeah. And, and what, what does that mean? Well, it, it, it means more than looking forward to 10 years of a 2% raise every year. You know, we can start with that. Um, that is unconscionable. And, um, uh, so my daughter uh, and I have started a very modest um, fund for follow uh, a fund we call Follow Your Dream. And it's um, open to, we have a, a, fac- a faculty and staff of uh, 18 at the school right now. And so we, it's for people, anybody in the school, whether you're on the front desk answering the phone or whether you're in the classroom, if you have a dream, we'd like to help you out. Uh-huh. And that has been very uh, that has, has been very satisfying. And I think it's been um, helpful. It's, it's a drop in the bucket. What I'm, what I'm trying to do is make it clear to the outside world too that teachers have dreams, teachers have lives. And to the extent that they can bring together their dreams and their lives, their students, will thrive. <laughs> you know, I
1: couldn't agree more. Yeah.
2: That's how it works. So this is a very modest effort, but uh, I'm also a believer in, uh, it's fine to talk. We have a lot of people in education who talk, they just talk all the time, actually. I think we, <laughs> we all, we, we get so caught up in process, we forget that we need to measure the results. And um, in this case, this modest Fun. we can, uh, we're very much, my daughter and I are very much a part of it. And the teachers come back from their experiences and, and talk to the uh, girls in assembly. And uh, it's, it's, it's great. And it sort of um, exemplifies some things that, that I'd like to think we can do for, um, with our teachers and for our teachers. Teachers are not cripples. We don't have to do things for them they are professionals and we want to do things with them.
1: Yes, Yes. absolutely. I love that. That's, yeah. Even thinking about DC,
0: like where I met your son, that was a dream of ours that like, honestly wouldn't have been possible without my parents because that was kind of like our graduation gift that they had helped fund our trip basically. But what we're doing is absolutely incredible because you're right. We do have so many dreams and Sometimes those can just be like a little bit out of reach because those funds, mm-hmm. aren't yeah, exactly,
2: yep, exactly. And uh, and I uh, one of the things that distresses me is that I, I think that we we've gotten so sort of used to thinking that teachers are are underpaid and so forth, and and when people are underpaid, they, they you tend to develop an attitude about them. And and the, the lumping all teachers together and uh, and complaining about taxes, because, uh, you know, if we raise teacher salaries, we have to raise taxes. Right. We do have to raise taxes. We mm. need to raise taxes a lot and we need to invest in the people who are creating the future of this country. Thank you. <laughs> you applause. We're
0: not the only ones
2: preaching. Yes. Yep. No, you're, not. you're not. I. I. Have written some letters to the editor and so forth. I, I'm trying to to speak up. It's it's um, it, but it's getting to be a crisis now. I am. Mm-hmm. I uh, heard this past year from the National Association of Independent Schools that there that four percent of college graduates are now going into K to twelve education. Four percent. Yeah, that number four.
0: is getting less and less and. Last time right. I heard is that colleges are completely wiping out their colleges of education or teachers colleges because uh, no one wants to attend them. That's mm-hmm.
2: right yeah I heard that too uh, and it's um, and that near that that's a spiral if we have fewer schools training people I mean it, it, that's a downward spiral yeah. and um, well we'll just have to see what happens but uh, I think that when people find their children can't go to school because there's there are not any teachers in their classrooms, so I suppose that will capture people's attention. Or
0: it but, makes me wonder, like, what is like, where is rock bottom? Like, what what do we need to hit for people to open their eyes and say enough is enough?
1: Because yeah,
0: I feel like we're already
1: there. Yeah, but obviously,
0: like, we're in the midst of it all. But I mean, when are people going to say,
2: you know, it, yeah? I I don't know, and yet. Everybody I've ever had this conversation with, if, if I say to them, tell me about your teachers. Tell me about the, the teacher you remember most or how many teachers do you remember from your elementary school days? And people will light up and talk about these mm. wonderful individuals. Yep. People who cared so much and who spent the extra time and who had who were either quirky or they Mm -hmm. made made us want to learn, made us want to thrive ourselves. And yet you talk about teachers in general and everybody gets terminal glaze. I mean, (laughs) I I don't get it.
1: No, it baffles me. It is, it's, it's hard to concept that just and especially when we have even years later you have students reaching out to you saying you made a difference or whatever it might have been how can you not want more of that I guess of course quality professionals professionals. yeah
2: yes yes
0: so I'm glad that you're still mentoring because
1: yeah
0: I mean just in a few years that we've been teaching we're like we're, we're we're losing quality
1: yeah for sure
2: that's very yeah. Well, we need, we need a lot of us. And I think those of us who are quote retired, which is, I think a hateful word. I don't, I don't even <laughs> like retired, but um, it, it, we have, we have perspective and experience. <clears throat> we don't have current classroom uh, experience, but that doesn't, but there there are certain commonalities of teaching and um and we certainly uh, have that to share. And I, I wish there'd be more people who would spend time just spending time listen, listening to teachers, mm-hmm. and supporting them. I mean, you don't have to be a rocket scientist or a genius just yeah. to have a cup of coffee with somebody. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's... Um, Accurate.
0: I mean, that's why we started this podcast and we've said it time and time again, like teachers' voices need to be amplified. They need to be heard because we spend so much time listening about the teachers and people talking about the teachers right enough is enough like we can't keep talking about us you need to actually hear from us and we need actionable steps of what do we do to change the world that we're living in Mm -hmm. I got this big conversation with my parents the other day at dinner and I was just (laughs) like I my goal is to inspire the teachers to stand up and to advocate for ourselves and to make a change in the world that's not Budging,
2: yeah, and
1: I
0: just refuse
3: to to
1: settle. Yeah, I'm mm-hmm. too fired up
2: about it. Yeah. Well, you know that's so interesting because one of the notes I made to myself um, about um, this was sort of moving onto the uh, if you had advice uh, department, um, which is to be an advocate. Mm-hmm. The thing is, teachers, uh, you're just so tired by the end of the day. The idea of thinking that you're gonna to go to a, a big meeting and all of that. I, I do think that's hard. But um, one of the things i sorry, I have sort of three main points in all this, but one of them is um, going back to my years uh, teaching in Amherst, uh, Massachusetts in, the, in third grade, I had a supervisor, a, a, an absolutely astonishing woman named Kay Padelford, I've never forgotten her. She was four feet 10 i'm i'm five eight Uh, and and kay padelford um was the sort of person diminutive to say the least she would open the door unannounced walk in my classroom would be in in what i viewed as chaos everybody's talking nobody's raising their hand it's just a a nightmare and Mm -hmm. (laughs) and she came in and immediately the room was quiet she didn't have to say anything it Mm -hmm. just settle down and then she would say very quietly boys and girls put your heads down and those are the days with desks and rows you know so and all these little heads would go down Mm. and and then she would smile at me and walk out okay (laughs) and so um at one of the earliest i think the first conference i had with her which would have been sort of a september um when the children were just coming back to school. And she said, I'm going to give you a piece of advice, which you probably won't take, but I'm gonna give it to you anyway. And she was right, I did not take it. And I've also passed it on to hundreds of teachers, most of whom probably didn't take it either, but it speaks to advocacy actually. Her advice was very simple she looked at me and and she said, don't smile until Christmas. And I looked at her and she said, you can always be friends, but once if you don't establish your leadership of the class at the beginning, it's very hard to get it back. And I Mm -hmm. see you're having trouble with that. Yes, yes I was. (laughs) So I've thought a lot about it over the years. And I think that many of us go into teaching because we we just really enjoy the kids. I mean that's one of the reasons you do it. And I think many of us, and I certainly put myself in this category, um, can sometimes err on the side of being friends and being buddies. And many of the of our students need us in in that emotional way. And yet we really have to be the leader of the class Mm -hmm. and we have to be the advocate for our children and for ourselves. And one of the biggest problems I see on another uh, independent school board here and some of the outrageous behavior of the parents and the teachers are so worn down by it, just exhausted by it. And luckily we've got division heads who will be advocates for the teachers and help the teachers be advocates for themselves. But part of being an advocate is to set the boundaries. You're setting the boundaries for expectations and also for what is not acceptable. And in my third grade class, all those years ago, I did not set any boundaries. I just kept thinking if I was nice and smiled and was kind, that they would be smile and well, that was a a wonderful pipe dream. And and (laughs) certainly I'd I'd like to think that the classroom was a place where people were safe and it was kind, but I'm not sure it was always safe for everybody because I had not established boundaries with clear consequences. Mm
3: -hmm. And
2: um, it's so hard to talk about structure And the only way I've been able to talk about structure so that it doesn't sound like a a bunch of rules is to ask people to imagine, I've done this with parents and with teachers. Imagine yourself walking across the Golden Gate Bridge. Beautiful, but there are no sides on it. And you are going to feel as if you may fall off. As soon as there are sides on it, you can drive across, you can skip across, you can run across, you can walk. And to me, and as a parent of three children, say the same thing, that the structure that you put into place allows people to be free inside the structure. But without the structure, you're not sure. You're not sure if you're going to fall off the sides. And somehow it is a really hard thing for us all to really understand about ourselves and and how to do it but i think it is and i think it by setting your own boundaries you do command respect and as soon as you have respect people don't mess with you
3: Mm -hmm.
2: it's and you don't want to be intimidating i've worked with intimidating people that doesn't that doesn't get anybody anywhere, um, and uh, you certainly can't learn from teachers that intimidate you. Well, you don't learn much. You do learn something. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, that. And I've often thought about it. Don't smile until Christmas. And mm-hmm. I think, it, probably. I mean, it was the first piece of advice that I got. That I really retained, and here it is, all these years later, I still got it. <laughs> So I, that.
1: <laughs> I know I like that analogy to the bridge that it really, I mean, it makes perfect sense in the classroom. You have to set boundaries so that you can thrive.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. Beautiful. But and a part of that, of the thriving part, uh, I'd like to go back to my statement that I made early about, the the influence of Quaker education. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: Um, I'm not, I wasn't raised a Quaker. Um, My family is not Quaker. And I think I went to the Quaker school because um, it was was close by. And uh, my father had gone there for a couple of years, uh, a long time ago. But what I learned there Uh, among everything else. But what I learned about people um, was the Quakers have a profound belief, which they live on a daily basis, that everybody in the world has what they call an inner light and they capitalize it. Now, other religions talk about souls and things, but the inner light, um, sometimes it burns brightly and sometimes it is on a dimmer, depending on what what stage of our lives we're in, but it's always there. And I realized that I was blessed by being surrounded by teachers who had that belief. So boys and girls were not, we all shared an inner light and I didn't understand about the gender differences uh, until I got to college and I found girls going completely nuts because there was, I went to a woman's college, went to Vassar. And um, I, I just, I mean, I, it just it took me aback totally. And the part that the inner light has affected me as a teacher. Is that even it, it helped me deal with the most difficult students? Because so I kept reminding myself, and I kept saying, "As long as I can see this child's inner light, <laughs> I I can communicate." And there are times when it's really hard because you know kids can really be extremely exasperating, trying all of that,
3: mm-hmm.
2: but. The other piece of Quaker education is the use of silence. And in our world of noise, um, as a head of school, I found that silence was very powerful. and um, Particularly if we were having um, a really difficult experience with a teacher or a student who um, had died. And well, that's when, I, and my experience was that, young people who may never have sat in total silence when there is something really serious, something sad, and something that actually there are very few words for uh, that silence is powerful. And um, at a Quaker school, you go to meeting um, at least once a week. Uh, I went twice. You're not allowed to read. You don't doodle. You, You certainly wouldn't take your pods and your, phones. Um, and for beginning in fifth grade, you just sit for 45 minutes. Wow, boys and girls. And and we did because that was the expectation. And sometimes people would speak, the adults um, and the older uh, students. Uh, but sometimes they didn't. you just sit there for 45 minutes. Do you know that seems like an eternity?
1: I, yeah, I mean, five minutes of silence seems long, so 45 minutes of just it was, sitting.
2: It was something. Wow. It was, um, but it it was a great, great lesson, and I, I learned how to get inside my own head and think, and very often, the principal would have given us a quotation or something to think about, but mm-hmm. um, yeah, so... I, I I used a lot of my Quaker background without thinking of, about it that much uh, mm-hmm. in, in those terms, but it's certainly influenced my teaching and it certainly uh, influenced uh, my leadership. So. Um,
0: May I ask you a question on that? Yes. In, in what ways, like, how do you see that foundation like, how did it play a role in your teaching? So, like, for silence, for example, were you often finding yourself like in moments of silence with your class, or what did that look like for you? you no,
2: know, I I use silence in my classrooms. Uh, I uh, in the case of not not every class in the same way, but I found particularly with middle schoolers. And by the way, my favorite grades to teach are seventh and eighth grades. I mm. just love them they are you know they're 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 just vulnerable and funny and smart Mm -hmm. they're wonderful anyway i i often would start the day with silence for a minute and i found it 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 worked um it's just a way of people getting people to center down which is a, a phrase the quakers use um and sometimes I would say, right, today we're going to be reading, what, To Kill a Mockingbird. And so we're going to take the next minute, just each of us to think, what do we want to say about the book? Because while I'm, I think it's idealistic and wonderful to have children sitting in silence, I think it helps if you give them some guidance about what to think mm-hmm. about. So I, I did. I did use silence and I found it to be effective and I think for the children who are restless and we've all had them and they always seem to have something in motion they're tapping a pencil or you know Mm
3: -hmm. jiggling their
2: foot or scratching their eyes or worse And, and um that I found they it was hard for them but on the other hand they all did it I don't remember anybody not doing it and particularly after we had done it after the school year had gotten started and they were getting kind of used to it Mm
3: -hmm. um
2: and and when it's been a difficult day and we've had conflict in the classrooms or or, you know or somebody has gotten sick or something has happened to end the day and in um let's just think about and what do we want to have happen tomorrow it also it it can it can be a nice way it's a kind of punctuation in that you know it's like sort of a comma or a semicolon um, but it's not an exclamation point hmm.
0: that's such a great practice yeah you know in the state of arizona someone just passed legislation where we actually are required to spend one moment or one minute in silence every day
1: after the which, pledge yeah and yeah
0: so we had actually at least in my class have been practicing that prior to and Man, is it like life changing? Mm, like, really the really moment and to just sit in silence and to be at peace, I think is great for all children. So, that's awesome that you discovered that early
1: on. I like the idea of doing it at the end of the day, too. Like you said, like a punctuation mark yeah. ending the day before release time, which is always a crazy time. But <laughs> I like the idea of ending the day on a minute of silence, just to reflect on the day, or like you said, have a topic that they have to think of, whatever it might be, but that's something thinking of it now
2: that I would love to do in my classroom. Yeah, I think, uh, and also I like, I used it for thinking ahead because some, I think for children, just sort of by nature, they're very much in the moment, which is is fine and and it should be and is one of their charms, but it also doesn't hurt to be thinking about the next day mm-hmm. in that thing because every day builds on every other day. And so, okay, what happened today um, that meant a lot to you, and 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 then what do you, what do we need to be thinking about tomorrow based on the things that went on today, and and sometimes. You know, that can become a, a kind of a rolling thing if you start the day and you end the day with just that moment. A lot of schedules won't allow for that because um, our schedules mm-hmm. are so packed. Oh, yeah. But, but yeah, it's it's nice. It's actually, it's nice for us as teachers just to sit down and breathe for a minute.
1: Oh, absolutely.
2: For
0: sure. For sure. Oh, that's going so quick. Oh, yeah. You're absolutely oh, right. Um, our schedules are just... One thing after the next, after the next, after the next, but to take just one minute to pause and be present is not only amazing for the children but great for.
1: Us. Yeah,
3: as <laughs> I need
2: it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's wonderful. Actually, it's a great way um, to start and or end a faculty meeting.
1: Mm. That's a perfect, Should to
3: take
2: that
1: too, Doctor Jeffries. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. so overall, so you obviously have been, you have seen a lot of grade levels and you said the seventh and eighth grade was your favorite age to teach, <laughs> yes. but what would you say at uh in the position of being a teacher, what would you say has been your favorite part of teaching
2: as a whole? Oh, as a whole, it's, um, It's the connection with students. Yeah, And and, and I think when you really open yourself up to connecting with your students, you learn a lot about yourself. Mm -hmm. And of course you learn a lot about them. And one of my um, most kind of, um, I guess, important experiences in that realm so when I was teaching first grade and the first day of school, the mother of this um, little boy whose name I think was Sandy, um, came in and, and and we shook hands and you know all of that. and, and, and she burst into tears. And I, I couldn't imagine when she said, "I'm just so worried. He doesn't know his letters. and he't he, he, he can't spell his name. And he's never going to learn to read. I mean, she was just she'd worked herself up into a real lather,
3: mm-hmm. and
2: I had never taught first grade, <laughs> but um, that's not a time for me to tell her that. So I, <laughs> I
1: <laughs> so, so worry t- her more.
2: <laughs> yeah, that's right. So I said, it you know it, it'll be I'm I'm sure it'll be fine, and Sandy and I are going to have a a fine time and why don't you, you know, try and be okay and then let's talk next week. And so I tried to give her reassurance by promising her that I'd be in touch with her, which, which I was. Okay, so it turned out and what, that was my first experience with uh, learning disabilities. Nobody had, had uh, a, a tested child and it was clear. I mean, you didn't have to be that smart to see that he really couldn't see the letters. Mm-hmm. So I, I had um, seen a um, demonstration when I was doing my student teaching of a teacher who had taught reading through the fingers, also Helen Keller, uh, with sandpaper letters. And I thought, okay, he, do, he doesn't hear them. He, does, he can't do the phonetics. And he can't memorize them because he can't see the differences between them. They're just a bunch of squiggles. So I got my three children organized and <laughs> got out the sandpaper and we started making uh, sandpaper letters at home. And we uh, actually, in, in all fairness, I made most of them because they all had homework, but they, they were helpful. <laughs> and, um, and it was like a light going off. And that was a moment of connection when it, it's an aha moment. Mm. Well, he he just took off. I mean, I couldn't make letters fast enough, <laughs> mm-hmm. for him. and he was reading on grade level. You know, by the time um, the school year was up,
3: that's amazing. Really
2: smart kid, but he hadn't. He just didn't know. And what I found, I still find fascinating. I think LD is a very interesting area, um, but that connection. That most of us make through our eyes and ears that he made through his fingers,
3: mm-hmm.
2: and so for me it was a, a moment of wonder as well, but uh, the main thing is it worked yeah. and most yeah most connection is not that dramatic but I, i'm I'm an eighth grade boy who who just uh, was having a hard time reading and um we, uh, when I was teaching in the, in the seventh and eighth grade in the boys' school, I was taught English and Latin, and, and the headmaster insisted that every seventh grader had to read Silas Marner. Now, have you ever read Silas Marner?
1: I have not. No, no, mm-hmm. I haven't read it well,
2: and I hadn't been, and I never did again. Um, <laughs> but it, it is beyond boring. I mean, it, it, it is excruciating. But that was kind of a rite of passage and this headmaster, every seventh grade child had to read it. So I bribed them and I said, okay, look. And I said, you know, I, I, don't, I, I don't think much of, of uh, Silas or his protege, little Epi, I mean, it's George Eliot at her worst. And um, I said, but you, if you will, well, well, let's just do that for in two weeks. And then after that, you get to choose science fiction. I gave them three choices. And I found that that worked fine, that we all were in it together. We did it, we took the test, everybody was fine. And and that's another way of making connections because I don't think we always as adults have to be separate. I had the same feeling about Silas Marner that my boys did. So why don't we go into this together rather than have me trying to sell them on the idea that Salis mm-hmm. was a great choice.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And um, I'm not a science fiction fan myself, but I read up on Arthur Clarke, who was very popular at the time, and there are a couple of others. And um, the boys were delighted. And so we went from 19th century England on a farm out in the middle of no place to um, we went to the moon. Well, that's okay. <laughs> it was mm-hmm. a great... <laughs> uh, anyway so uh, yeah I, I think it's a connection
0: absolutely and i think you're absolutely right to say it's the, it's the little connections even with being solely human with right is so important and i think some teachers forget like you too are a human and it's okay to make mistakes and it's okay to show your vulnerability and your honesty as a human being and just be real no matter what the age is mm-hmm. that you're teaching I mean I yeah. know that our second graders appreciate when we are vulnerable and honest and like just admit to our mistakes yeah. because we too are human and we have those flaws mm-hmm.
1: yeah, I do is- yeah and it says a lot that you can remember a story like that connection that you had however well, many years later
2: I know Is, well I, I think for some of us who who truly love teaching it it is the connections that make us thrive Mm -hmm. and it is the lack of connections and that happens too when you realize there's a student you're just not reaching Mm
3: -hmm. and
2: um thinking about that how to get that because it's it just matters i think to most teachers we 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 get our nourishment from the kids at that moment when they are learning and we are able to um, facilitate that so that they can go on and and learn more i think yeah.
0: that's one of the hardest parts for me is not like making that connection off for that, or like searching for that connection mm-hmm. yeah. trying to get them to i mean trust you in essence is one of the hardest things for me at times because you just want them to automatically trust you and establish that relationship but it does it took me this year 37 weeks to finally build trust with one wow and in the last 3 weeks of school we had the best time yeah. ever and she finally understood that she could trust me and that we had this bond and i mean she'll forever be like engraved in my heart
2: forever oh, and you're going you're going to remember her always yeah awesome. <laughs> years from now you'll be sitting Doing a podcast and you'll remember. (laughs) Absolutely. I hope so. Absolutely. Um,
0: But speaking of the hardest part, I mean, at least for myself, what would you say is the hardest or one of the hardest parts of teaching for you? Or what what has been?
2: Well, I think we talked the hardest part is when you don't when you don't feel connected Mm -hmm. and therefore you feel as if the child is not learning, because there's no question not only are we doing it for this sense of community and connection which you're trying to build, but certain things have to be accomplished. They've got to do well on their ERBs or whatever the test is. And um, and in high school, if you are teaching at college prep, they, they, they've got to get into the classes where that's going to matter. And um, so I think for me, um, The extreme of what was difficult was when I didn't feel connected to an individual student. Um, On a daily basis, um, there was always so much that I wanted to do with my various classes and I wanted to be and, and I wanted to share. And so for me, disciplining myself so that we could balance out the that we're we're all here to learn and and um, you're gonna you, we all need to perform. And the way they performed would reflect on how, how well I had taught as well as their own um, inclinations. But I think keeping the balance in a classroom was it, I, I, that never got to be easy because the more I enjoyed the kids, the more I was I was ready to, you know, talk about anything with them. And, and as they get older, as you know, the conversations you can have with middle schoolers, mm-hmm. it's absolutely amazing. Yeah. <laughs> and so, and and I hated to, to ever shut that down. And I also think what is really hard, and I suspect is hard now, just from what I'm hearing and seeing in the teachers and I see, is there's a lot of sort of existential stuff going on we've got the the political scene is really difficult for kids and high schoolers.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And it was, um, and it's very hard to, for teachers to know sort of how to navigate that and keep yourself out of it because you don't want to get into a personal yeah. discussion. Um, but the issues, and part of this of course, is the instant communication from TV and, and uh, social media, but, The issues are so complicated. Um, And one, I think that one example of that is um, if you have same sex parents, (coughs) which personally is, is fine with me. However, it's not fine for some parents in the class. And when you see children being ostracized by other parents because they happen to have two dads or two moms I've I've always found that really hard.
1: Mm, I can imagine.
2: Yeah, and at any time I see a child becoming the vehicle for adults' anger or hostility, that that using children, I can become just irrational. Which mm. <laughs> at a time when I'm the one in charge, I need to be rational. Yeah, <laughs> but it's. I think it's so hard, and I and I see that I, I do see more of that than I w- would like. And mm-hmm. certainly in the last election, um, when I was on campus for this school that I'm on the board of here, um, and the the head of the school I thought was great. There were no nobody could wear political hats, no T-shirts with you know sayings and and all of that. But even so it was hard and it all gets tangled up in some schools with race
3: mm-hmm.
1: and
2: and with religion if you happen to have muslim students and and i that is just really really hard for me yeah. i can imagine yeah
1: because
0: our school is really good also about just keeping that on the outside like same thing with our school you're not to wear anything political you're not even allowed to wear like logos when you come volunteer right. stuff like that but i mean I even noticed most students the past I would say how long have I been teaching five
1: five years five
0: years now like even within that time frame you still hear <laughs> uh, opinions of parents come through the students
1: yes yeah. very
0: very frustrating mm-hmm.
1: like
0: you you have no idea
1: they have no idea they don't know what they're saying yet you know. you know they're just repeating what they hear at home. And, you know, we cut it off because we don't do any outside. outside like pop culture, no current events, things like that. But, you know, they're eight years old, seven and eight years old in second grade and they hear a
2: lot and they say a lot. So they yeah, they do. And then you get into this thing where you don't want to have them, you know, fighting with their parents. Yes. I mean, so I just, I just think that's hard. And I haven't, Found anybody who actually knows how to navigate that very well?
1: Yeah. You do, please.
2: Love it.
0: <laughs> we, no, it, speaking for myself, I struggle.
2: Yeah, uh, it's hard. It's hard to
1: to tune that out, and you know they they are so curious and they do want to know about things. And there are certain things that teachers are not there to teach, and that's more on the parents. So unfortunately, it,
2: it is, and and they're exposed to so much but um, mm. the, the TV i mean evening tv the news i've decided is i don't know who's who's uh programming things but to have these dreadful ads on about these pills that people take and the side effects maybe blah 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 blah. well Mm. just kids first of all nobody needs to hear that stuff but certainly children don't Mm -hmm. and there is as far as i can tell no um differentiation being made for evening news, what advertisements are appropriate? Because you have to assume that very young children are seeing the evening news, you just mm-hmm. do. Um, and while I have not had questions myself about different kinds of medication, I do know I was uh, talking with a group of teachers uh, about a month ago, or so, and, and several of them had gotten questions about um, some of these um, things for your digestive tract and some of the things for uh, birth control and uh, you know and these are just simply not a, it's not appropriate for yeah. for for children so
0: no those are adult conversations mm-hmm. that, I mean I don't watch the evening news I don't allow myself to watch the evening news I will say I'm a culprit of keeping it on in the morning and even that is like touch and go for me but it's so easy just to leave it on in the background. Mm-hmm. Kids pick up all of it; like they're hearing all of those things, and yeah, see yeah, it's so. into school, and it it does affect them. Mm-hmm. You do hear the comments, and you do hear like <laughs> even just television shows. Like I had a girl like mimic like very <laughs> like dramatic things that were happening. <laughs>
1: I, yeah. And I do you remember, and I told a story of my student one time who we do gratitude journal every morning. So they always say what they're grateful for. And I had a student that told me he was not grateful for the crime rate in New York and i was very found that hilarious and i told him hey let's think of something we are grateful for maybe we're grateful for the police officers who handle the crime rate right? but i just and you know for sure that he got that from whatever they were watching you know yes. so yes. it is it is funny at times but then also you know certain things might not be so funny yeah
2: yep yeah, i have come to the conclusion that i think that for many of our children growing up now that they're living in a scary world they've come through two and a half years of pandemic mm-hmm. yeah when when parents who would like to be able to say it's going to be okay well we're not so sure it's going to be okay because we don't know what these viruses do mm-hmm. um, and then we've had the the um, yeah, that I want to call it the Trump years, I guess, where it was so much violence, so much corruption, so much hatefulness all around. Um, and then we've we had the um, whatever it was, a recession or whatever it is we're doing now, bear market or something, but a lot of financial uncertainty. And so, it, it's, I, I think, I understand somewhat how. Children are feeling they don't remember a world that was calm, and, and 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 people in your generation are facing futures that are really complicated and mm-hmm. also uncertain. Yep.
0: That, and that has been something that I personally have noticed a lot lately, and I I like I just attributed it to me being a young adult, but I've talked to my parents so many times, and I'm like I just don't as a child remember a time where things have been this just
1: hectic yeah like constant
0: news like it's just a weird world that we're living in right and I just I didn't have that growing up and I was like well maybe it's because I'm older and I see it now but holy cow it just feels like every day it's something new and every day is just like this unknown and
2: it's not (laughs) Well, and I think there's an intensity to it, and and certainly the war in Ukraine um, is a, is an example. And, and we we are bombarded with issues and problems and pain.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And we can't do anything about it. And, I have, and that, and I have a friend who's a psychologist who um, whose business has been thriving in the last few years, uh, she's always had a good business, but people are just lining up to get reassurance. Mm-hmm. because we feel as if there's huge problems but there's not much we can pardon me that we can do except um, vote yeah
0: and that's how I felt about education recently and I'm just sitting here like my wheels are constantly spinning I'm like what can I do what can I do what can I do and thus far like I've broken it down to I need to vote I need to contact my senators like I need to be yeah, out to people that can make a difference because I can't let myself spiral out of control. Like I need to focus on one to two avenues and something that I really believe in, like education. Yeah. that can change the world. Mm-hmm.
2: So. no, I think that's right. my one of my grandmothers used to opine that if everybody would just please sweep the corner of the big room, if you swept your own corner, the middle would take care of itself. Mm-hmm. and I think um, this whole thing of who's who's taking responsibility and I think that's another thing that is worrisome and it's one of the things that concerns me about teachers because I I read a lot and see a lot the whole lot of talking as you were saying Keller, about about teachers and 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 this whole idea of giving teachers guns so that they can protect the class (laughs) it's just it's ludicrous
1: we just did a whole episode on that yeah (laughs) i I mean but it's
2: when you think about it it it's not realistic and it's scary and why Mm -hmm. why would anybody stay in a profession where where you you're going to have to have a gun in your drawer which of course it wouldn't be any even if you knew how to use it um and not hit one of the children by the time you got it loaded and so forth whatever was happening would be over i I just feel that it's um and it's that kind of thing that i think contributes a lot to a general feeling of malaise Mm -hmm. it's powerlessness and as if we're not being appreciated for what we are doing and we're being asked to do a whole bunch of stuff that we Mm -hmm. don't know how to do like guns or um less dramatically but I, i think the amount of marriage counseling and family counseling and mm-hmm. all kinds of stuff that we're not qualified for we're we're, we're teachers exactly we're, and it's got to be really really hard for teachers now so i mean that's sort of a downer and i don't want to end on a downer because no i'm an optimist
1: of course and
2: i think if you if you look at the children that we are entrusted to us you cannot help but be optimistic the world mm-hmm. is going to be just fine these are <laughs> Terrific people. And, um, and if, if, you're, if you're not feeling good about the future, then you're probably in the wrong profession because we all believe in it. We believe in our children. We are investing ourselves in them. And, um, and my, the children that I'm seeing here in St. Louis, public schools and private schools, you know, are, are, are kids. <laughs> They're <laughs> kids as they have always been kids. Mm-hmm. and um i just want to be sure that we we as adults you know don't don't mess up so so yeah. that uh, life is harder for them than it needs to be and i think it is a hard time but i also think we're in it together and i i really believe it's going to be all right but i don't know when
1: yeah
0: and i think that's the hardest part right is yes when they an end date yeah just, you know right there are times being in the profession of teaching gets easier. Mm-hmm. People stop expecting us to be counselors and teachers and security and <laughs> all the above all you
2: know. yeah, right, and also may I say bankers, the numbers of young teachers who are spending <laughs> their own money um, but i i I believe and I hope for teachers that they understand teachers have more leverage right now than you've had in years and leaving out teacher unions. um, There's a huge teacher shortage, Mm -hmm. 300,000 last I heard for the whole country. Um, And people, we have to have teachers. So this is a good time to be an advocate for yourselves individually and as a group Um, and not to, I mean, these school committees that are banning books and so forth, that's fine. I mean, it's it's terrible, but let's not let them determine the future of teachers. Mm-hmm. And I think that means writing letters to our editors. I think it means doing what you're doing with podcasts. Uh, I think it means doing blogs. I think it means harassing mm-hmm. your local um, TV and radio stations um, until they will do more stories on real teachers, but <laughs> not, not, not the mythology um, and break down some of the mythology that, oh, well, teachers have such an easy job. It's just nine months a year. And then you have the summers off. Well, but no, actually that isn't the way it works. <laughs> and <laughs> and uh, I'm tired of hearing that. Yes. Um, but yeah, being advocates together um, is, and, and using the leverage we have, we'll never have a better time to get some changes made because they need us.
1: Yeah. Yes.
0: Yes. Society does need us.
1: Yes. Now yep. thing, mm-hmm. really. Well, yeah. just kind of then just to wrap it up, do you have any last like comments, words of wisdom, <laughs> future teacher advice, just a positive quote, anything
2: for us? <laughs> Oh, you know. I think teaching is—it demands all, of, all of, all of our very best selves, and so I guess I have to say, you know, love teaching, um, love learning yourself,
3: mm-hmm.
2: um, and love your students, and that means not not trying to be their saviors or, or you know, their great guides or, or any of that, but to forgive ourselves when we fall short and to help to teach our children to understand that we're not looking for perfection. Mm. We're, we're just looking um, for doing the very best we can that's and loving that's it. Perfect. Yes. Yeah. Thank
0: yeah. <laughs> you we'll so much. We'll keep the Zoom running here in a second, but I just wanted to close out by saying thank you for being on our podcast today. I mean, what a great conversation, and I just feel so lucky to have sat by your son and mm-hmm. his connection to have been made because he is absolutely right. He was saying you and my mom would just really. Hit it all. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know. All I can say is I absolutely agree. This conversation has just been so wonderful, and I've enjoyed it, and I hope. Keep in touch. Yeah.